You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. So our podcast is called Right and Wrong. Are these your notes? These these your notes about what we're going to say? That's a really good question. Um, Sculptor doesn't put their slab of clay or whatever on their plinth and then start doing the eyelashes. Yeah. You know what I mean? Just like gushing over your back. (laughs) First for everything. (laughs) This is it, guys. The big secret to getting published is you have to write a good book. (laughs) Better here first. (laughs) Hello and welcome back to the Right and Wrong podcast. I'm Jamie, and joining me today uh, is Marjack Literary's very own Diana Beaumont. Hello, Diana. Welcome to the show. Hello, Jamie. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, I'm excited to, to have you on. We had a few technical difficulties uh, beforehand, but uh, we yes. made it in the end. <laughs> we, we did with, with gentle coaxing and a lot of patience. Thank you. <laughs> no, no problem. I'm just glad that you're here. Uh, and I thought we'd start off by talking about, you've been in publishing for quite a few years now. Um, I have a far, far more years than I care to remember. But actually, <laughs> you know, it's a, you know, it's a really interesting industry to be a part of. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I thought, what, what better place to start than, than your, your publishing origin story? So when was it that you decided you wanted to work in this industry? Well, that is such a good question. And I think about that sometimes, especially when I see all these incredibly focused young people wanting to do work experience and placements mm. when they're, from when they're about 12. Um, <laughs> so basically, I didn't have a clue. I read English like, like a lot of us. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew I didn't want to do the kind of serious milk round kind of jobs. Um, I didn't want to be an accountant. I can just about add up. Um, <laughs> and I love books. So I left university without a clue and back in those days it was before um before the internet um (laughs) and actually I I am old enough to have written my first job applications by hand I've got a few of them sort of knocking around in my best neatest writing in ink you sit now about a (laughs) hundred but um so when I left I what happened was if you wanted a job in the media and I thought media was about right, um, you know, reflected my interests. You looked in the Guardian on a Monday and it had a whole listing of media jobs. And so the first job I ever got just to show you how how not sorted I was, was um, it had media sales. So I thought, oh, well, it's media, you know, and I applied for, the, for it. Okay. <laughs> and, um, it was actually me and the other girl were basically sacked after a couple of weeks and oh. um well pretty much because I was so hopeless uh, we were talking about tech just now and I, and it was in the days where we had to talk about I was trying to sell some kind of tech product to people mm-hmm. and yes. I literally didn't know the difference between a hard disk and a floppy disk which was the thing <laughs> at the time and so I think they they found me out but it was probably a blessing in that it forced me to work out what I did want to do. And I had a very short time on um, working on this magazine, Scallywag, which um, at the time was trying to bring down the major governments. Um, but as they only really paid in beer and the odd tenor, I realised it probably wasn't um, sustainable. So 
I kind of basically, I lurched from one thing to another. I thought about what do I like? I worked actually for a part work company, which I really loved for about six months. Um, and you know, those magazines you get and you collect them in a free binder. Well, it was that. And I had to, to do research on dinosaurs or, or on great works of literature and do a little summary. Um, cool. and, and actually I really enjoyed it. Um, there was, I remember one for, um, Camus and I put you know set in sun-drenched Algeria a guy you know <laughs> murders someone anyway it was really silly but kind of fun um and then I thought art you know I'd always been interested in art um worked for the Contemporary Art Society and again after a while we had the luxury back then I mean we're talking about um sort of early-ish 90s that you could move relatively easy easily from job to job it didn't necessarily feel like that I think it's a lot more competitive yeah a lot less flexible now so that's something I'm really grateful for so I could kind of feel my way but then I thought no books 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 got a job at Thames and Hudson where I was an editorial secretary and had to type things in triplicate you know, it was interesting in some ways, but I was in the sort of editing department and I wasn't enough of an art geek. I'm more of a sort of generalist and enthusiast, if you like. Um, and so I stayed there for probably too long. Advice to anyone in the industry, you don't have to stay that long. I stayed about two years. And then I really thought that I love books, but my first love was kind of fiction. Um, although, you know, I love nonfiction too, but it was always the books that I'd read that really stayed with me and that's where my passion lay so I got a job as an editorial assistant at Hodder and Stoughton where I worked for a couple of years and learned a huge amount I was there was a lot of filing you know it wasn't all paperless back then and I was terrible I used to get in trouble for not um I was told once I couldn't go on holiday till I finished the filing. I knew where everything was <laughs> in the towering pile but no one else was but what I learned there from my my boss, who was you know very smart, super efficient, more efficient than I am. I mean, I I am efficient, but she was just the mo- literally the most organised person in the world. But mm. what I learned was um, was about the world of smart commercial publishing, and you know she acquired fiction, and gradually I started to edit. I was able to um, look after some of the books. And, and you learn on the job. There was never any formal training, which is quite terrifying. There was the old course that we did, but it's the sort of job where you just have to sort of somehow imbibe it and learn it and, you know, can make mistakes. But it also taught me, I guess, I, I you know, I, I had my degree from Oxford, you know, fancy pants. And, you know, I, I read everything and anything, like probably a lot of your listeners, you know, from sort of, Lace by Shirley Conran under the covers to, you know, the classics. I just devoured everything I could get. I'd always been a passionate reader. Um, But it also taught me, I suppose, that people who were so-called commercial writers as opposed to so-called literary writers could be, you know, really accomplished, talented, effective storytellers. And, you know, there is still uh, kind of prejudice against so-called entertainment and it's sort of looked down on and and can sometimes be dismissed even though Mm -hmm. there are people who I think you know are at genius level like Marion Keyes who in her so-called sort of romantic women'sy novels actually wrote you know will write about alcoholism will write about you know people at the very extremes of their life but with this sort of humor and compassion and empathy but also 
acknowledging the darkness. So it taught me a lot. And um, after that, I, I applied for a job at Transworld and became a commissioning editor there for about eight years, I think. Oh, okay. And I commissioned fiction and nonfiction, which sort of reflects my taste as an agent now, really, um, yeah. that, you know, I love both. And you choose the things I really want to work on. And I, it's taken me some years to sort of refine that. Um, jumping back a little bit, after Transworld, I got to a point where I just felt like I needed a change and I didn't know what it was. Um, and I left and I had... I worked as a freelance editor doing sort of odds and sods and, you know, working sometimes with agents, sometimes direct with clients for yeah. some years. Um, I had my twin boys on April Fool's Day, 2009. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and <laughs> I know. <laughs> and um, <Yeah>. I know <laughs> uh, the joke's definitely on me, but um, no, they, they are lovely. And then I'd been in about a couple of years after that, when I was sort of getting my head above water, um, I'd been working before with a guy, Rupert Heath, in a sort of editorial support capacity. And although I had sold one book, actually, before I had the boys, something came into me. Uh, it was actually someone I had published and she wanted an edit. And then I thought, I can sell this. Um, I know what to do. Um, it had a title, I can't remember, but I said, how about calling it the Jane Austen Marriage Manual? Um, it was by Kim Itzel. And I thought that, you know, sounds good. And I sold it at auction. I mean, in fact, to Hodder, funnily enough, where, where, where I'd worked. And I sort of thought, oh, actually, you know, maybe this is something I could do. And then it started from there. And I was literally, I was at home. Um, I worked through and as an associate um, agent with Rupert, but I was at home. And, and it was literally the case that sometimes, you know, during an auction, um, you know, where more than one um, editor is interested in a project, I'd have kind of vomiting children and sort of trying to sort of drown <laughs> out the noise and sound um, suitably professional. Yeah. I worked with Rupert for a few years um, and then joined UTA. Um, well, I think at that point it was the agency group. It was bought over by UTA and worked as an agent Is that there. United Talent? Yes, exactly. And yeah. then um, they closed down their literary division. And ah. I started not pretty much, it was just over five years ago to the day, um, not quite, not a Saturday, but um, <laughs> <laughs> thank God. <laughs> they don't make me work quite that hard, although our job, although the hours are very sort of inflexible, I mean, are very flexible. You know, you mm -hmm. often end up working evenings and weekends, but equally you can sort of choose how you work a lot. So I started at Marjac about five years ago and I've sort of refined my pitch, if you like, um, to what I call smart commercial fiction and non-fiction. Um, it tends to have a feminist element often, but not always. Um, there's some social justice. I like things that are funny. Um, I'm actively looking to work with more underrepresented um, writers interested in the project. I'd have kind of vomiting children and sort of trying to sort of drown <laughs> out the noise and sound um, suitably professional. Yeah. I worked with Rupert for a few years um, and then joined UTA. Um, well, I think at that point it was the agency group. It was bought over by UTA and worked as an agent there. Is that there. United Talent? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And then 
um, they closed down their literary division. And oh. I started not pretty much, it was just over five years ago to the day, um, not quite, not a Saturday, but um, <laughs> <laughs> thank God. <laughs> they don't make me work quite that hard, although our job, although the hours are very sort of inflexible, I mean, are very flexible. You know, you mm-hmm. often end up working evenings and weekends, but equally you can sort of choose how you work a lot. So I started at Marjac about five years ago and I've sort of refined my pitch, if you like, um, to what I call smart literary commercial fiction and non-fiction. Um, it tends to have a feminist element often, but not always. Um, there's some social justice. I like things that are funny. Um, I'm actively looking to work with more underrepresented um, writers with the editing process. It's There are so many elements to being an agent um, which are really interesting, the sort of deal making and, um, and the sort of the career management, you know, contract negotiation, looking after um, making sure the royalties, the, the, the foreign rights, all those elements are, are, are looked after on behalf of the author. But I think the thing that really excites me is being there at the very genesis of a project. And that can be different. That can be, um, for example, there's a book, Lily's Promise, which came out last year, which is something I'm truly honoured and, and, and proud to have worked on. It's by, um, she's now 98, a Holocaust survivor, um, Lily Ebert, and was written with her great-grandson, who's now 18, Dov Foreman. And, and a guy I've worked with, um, Andrew Roach, who has an agency that tends to represent um, um, people with disabilities, deaf, neuro, neurodivergent, and so forth, um, he said, look, I heard them on the Today programme. I think there might be something in there. And I listened. He, we got in touch. And it really, it all started from there. I took them to a publisher, Macmillan, who I thought would be particularly sympathetic. And so we all worked together in the way that I really love to do, in a collaborative way, thinking about what the book needed to be, how the story would work, the title, um, sort of every step of the way. And, you know, much to my delight, the book did really, really well, and it got a couple of times to number one of all the books on Amazon and wow. Sunday Times bestseller list. And for Lily, it was a dream. You know, back in Auschwitz, she promised if she ever got out, she would tell the world. And yeah. at 97, when I first got in touch with her, you know, she thought it was probably getting a bit late and it wouldn't happen, but it has happened. And just just um, this week on Holocaust Memorial Day, it, it shot up the charts to number two. So that was something really, really special. And where I was very much involved from the start, other projects, often novels, they come in finished. Um, well, when I say finished, I, that's sort of in inverted commas. <laughs> there's usually, one you know, there's work to be done. Stage <laughs> yeah. one finished, exactly. We're, we're, you know, at that point when the, the, the author just thinks, I've got to let this go now. I've, mm-hmm. I've spent so long. It's time. Yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. going to be brave and put it out there into the world. And, of course, I will then have my views and editor will have their views. But I still really enjoy that process of giving editorial input and and it that the amount depends on the project sometimes you can go through a good number of drafts before I send it out to editors sometimes something is pretty polished and what's really interesting is is um, I had an example recently with one particular client who I, I have just taken on um she 
spoke to two agents and they both wanted the book to go in very different directions. One, something sort of darker and deeper, set in Victorian times. Um, and I liked that it had this wonderful effervescent humour and wanted to keep that humour, but to, yes, add some sort of depth and shade to it. But at the same time, you know, it's so subjective is what I'm saying. And yeah. Whilst you can have a knowledge of the market and we all try and keep up, you know, up to date with what's happening in the book market, what books are working, um, also um, with the editors, what they're looking for. So much of it is a kind of instinct and sometimes, you know, just a passion. There was one book, um, it was called The Marrying of Honey Kaufman by um, Eve Harris, and I sent it to 42, I think 42 different editors who all said wow. no. And in the end, a small but mighty Scottish press, Sandstone, took it on and it got long-listed for the Booker Prize and sold in wow. lots of territories and, and did really well. And I kept on saying to her um, when we got another no or it's too small or it's too, we've read enough Jewish books or we've read enough this and that, and I kept on saying um, to her, I just would say, I'm sorry, but they're all mad. <laughs> <laughs> they're wrong, they're wrong. Yeah. Um, but it's you know sometimes things come more easily and sometimes it takes a long time it's a sort of you know a leap of faith for both of us um it's so much of this business is actually collaborative it can often feel unequal especially if you're a sort of a newbie writer because getting an agent is one of the dreams and you know you can feel oh my god my agent my agent but actually you're equal partners I can't yeah. do this without the writers mm. we need you um and it's about a sort of yeah a communication and collaboration and that's how I like to work with um publishers in a very collaborative way I mean sometimes I have to get really cross if I feel something is wrong and apparently I can be scary sometimes which um <laughs> which pleases me um but only if I feel I have to be because um, I would far rather we all kind of work together to try and make things work and um yeah yeah well I mean speaking of stage ones I always like to reiterate that getting an agent, whilst it seem, might seem like the greatest thing in the world at the time for, for first-time authors, that is also still stage one. You know, you, you you as the agent and the author have to work together to now get the editor, get the publisher all involved. You're absolutely right. I mean, there are so many stages and it can be a roller coaster. You know, I'm, I'm sure many of your listeners will be aware that, you know, as agents we're taking risk in some ways but it's also a leap of faith because we believe in you yeah. and um the writers but it's very tough because you can get an agent and sometimes they don't sell the book and with the best will in the world and with all the passion it just doesn't land and that's yeah. horrible it's horrible for me it's horrible for the author and re rejection is very very hard and you know people rejection comes all the way along and the whole process but also you know, many highs and excitement. So if you do place that novel with a publisher, um, you know, that's obviously an absolute huge hurdle. You get it past the acquisitions meeting. And you know what? 
we hear about the mega deals all the time. Um, you yeah. know, the one that's, you know, sold for a billion pounds and then, <laughs> you know, sold eight trillion billion copies. And yeah. they are few and far between. Most people uh-huh. are slogging away and it's hard. And there's the wonderful moments, you know, that great review or the endorsement, or you find that, you know, Waterstones are taking a lot of copies, but it's up and down. And even people who you would look at from the outside, you know, they all have their moments of insecurities of thinking, you know, mm-hmm. why am I doing this? This is really hard. And I suppose part of my job is is helping them to keep the faith and to sort of believe in what they're doing, um, you know, and, and to celebrate. I think it's really important to celebrate the wins and the good times and to sort of allow yourself a pat on the back. And, but sometimes also to talk people through the rougher times because it's, it's pretty obvious, but most of the time writers are sitting alone in a room. Yeah. They have no feedback. They might have, you know, other readers or writing groups or other people they can talk to. But essentially, it's a lonely, necessarily sort of proce- a lone process, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. And so for someone to be able to talk to you about the characters and so forth is really difficult. But yes, there are a lot of hurdles. And, and, and you know, I'm aware and very mindful of that. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Well, while we're talking about that, while we're on mm. the subject, submissions, you are, yes. so it's current, it's, it's the 29th of January, 2022, yes. and you are currently closed to submissions. Yes. Will Should I tell be, you why? <laughs> I'd love to hear why. Tell us why. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks. Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I'll tell you why. And I can't give you a clear answer as to when I'll be open, but I will be as straightforward and honest as I can. I think it's just been during the pandemic, the volume of work, um, having on and off my, my the aforementioned the aforementioned April Fool's boys are now nearly <laughs> teenagers, and you know they were working from home a lot of the time. There were a lot of stresses. I've managed to have COVID twice, and I just couldn't do it. I couldn't find the time to read the many many submissions that come mm-hmm. in and feel that I'm doing a proper job for my existing clients and giving them the best of my time. Um, I I think that's, you know, it's as simple as that. There will be a time, hopefully come spring, when I I can open up again. And I've been closed for longer than I planned. But again, I think I said to you before, I sort of knocked out with COVID and pneumonia and God knows what. Um, And that really sort of took a couple of months. So I just need, I, I always want to be accessible. And I know it's really frustrating for writers when they feel Christ, you know, I can't even send them an email. I can't even submit my work, but all I can say is I am planning to be open again. I am, I feel like I always say this, I'm nearly on top of everything. I've nearly read everything. (laughs) And then, and then, um, and then suddenly, you know, two people deliver or, you know, something happens and I'm like, well, I'm nearly, nearly finished. It never really stops in some ways, but I think, I have got through the sort of the bulk of it. So that's about as candid as I can be really. 
but that seems very reasonable. We all have to take some time off every now and again. And you're not even taking full time off. You're just taking a small part of your job time off. That's um, exactly it. That's exactly <laughs> it. I think it's just the sheer volume and sort of giving people, you know, the time and so forth. Um, and, and that's always a battle because you want those new voices. Of course you do. Um, mm. And yes, I did. I mentioned that I took someone on and that was not sort of really annoy some people, but it was via a client who'd, who'd worked with her some years ago. But I don't want it just to be a clicky thing. And whilst yeah. I love that particular book, I do want to be able to open up again. So watch this space. <laughs> watch this space. And the best place to, to check is, is the, the website. It's, that, it's the website. Yeah, okay, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so when you do open yourself up to submissions again, however long that may be, uh, the package at, at Marjac is is it's pretty um, traditional. It's just a cover letter, fifty pages, a synopsis for fiction, Absolutely. and then proposal instead of synopsis for nonfiction. Exactly that. Yes. Do you do you also ask for the fifty pages for nonfiction, or is it just the proposal and the cover letter? Um, do you know what? I really need to check what I what we are for <laughs> on the website, but I, th- I think the main thing is um, having a substantial enough chunk of the writing. If, if it's nonfiction, you need to be able to see the shape of the book. So, you yeah. know, contents, um, an introduction, a bit about why you're that the person who needs to be writing this particular book and enough writing, ideally from the beginning. So it's not just sort of, you know, bits that are piecemeal to give me a coherent idea of what it's going to be. And obviously with novels, we although um, we just asked for the first 50 pages or three chapters you know whichever comes nearest to that page amount um we do ideally want the book to be finished um so that if we want to see more we know um we know it's there yeah you know you can ask for the full manuscript and and get it yeah exactly yeah yeah okay so when you um when you receive a submission what order do you go through the component parts and how much weight do you attribute to each part? That's a really good question. Um, I can tell a lot from the letter. I mm-hmm. think the letter, the covering letter is hugely important. Um, and forgive me if I'm teaching anyone to suck eggs, but the key <laughs> things are for me is get my name right. I've had, um, <laughs> I've had, I've had, I've had a okay. dear Marjac before, um, and, and prefer, prefer, preferably the right agent name. Occasionally people sort of you know, they have the name of a different agent, which is kind of quite funny, but, um, yeah. probably not, <laughs> not, not that effective. Um, and so what I really want is to say, okay, this is either a novel or nonfiction about, you know, a short sort of elevator pitch really about what it is. Um, then you can expand a little bit more for a paragraph or so um, and tell me a bit more about the book, but as specific as possible. So so it's not just sort of um, a whole panoply of adjectives, which don't really, you know, it's sort of shiny and lovely and funny and this and that. It's like, well, I'll be the judge of that. Thank you. But, um, <laughs> but seriously, that tells me a little bit about what the book is, perhaps what genre it is. Um, it might be useful to give some comparisons. We don't expect you to be a marketeer. You know, that's not your job um, as an author, but it is no bad thing doing a little bit of research. Um, Just looking in bookshops, a really handy tip is looking at acknowledgement pages, finding out who an agent is, researching their list. And sometimes people say, I really enjoyed, I don't know, you know, um, Insatiable by Daisy Buchanan and thought this might 
be right for you, for example, or, or Lucy Vine or um, other writers. So, and, and, and that is appreciated because it means someone has taken a little bit of time. And then I want to see a paragraph about you and incorporating any sort of writing related information. So, you know, courses you've done or something really particularly interesting in your life that, that stands out. Um, and then, and then pretty much sign off. That's it. It doesn't need to be more than a page. Um, I then, if that letter is convincing and interests me, I will then go on and start reading. And sometimes I, I usually look at everything, give it a quick look. But if the letter doesn't work, it's it's highly unlikely I'm going to get any further, really. Um, so okay. I go to, I, I will give it a chance. I will have a flick over. But if it just, you're a writer. And so you need to be able to write a good letter. Um, yeah. um, I think it's that basic for me. It might not be fair, but I think that's probably in all honesty how I work it's very instinctive then I start those pages and usually if I love something I know within a page I know straight away if that writing just speaks to me or sort of um makes me tingle and <laughs> or, or, or or the subject matter just really matters I mean um I've I've sold a book recently to William Collins by um a human rights barrister Harriet Johnson and it's called Enough the Violence Against Women and How to End It and it's a polemic obviously but exploring how the judiciary um, the police the whole sort of legal system is very problematic in terms of how it addresses um, violence against women and this is obviously something that we're all horribly aware about and I feel really passionately about so I was very proud to be involved so the minute I knew that's what the book was and her credentials and the topic and that she could write and and speak very compellingly you know for me that was a no-brainer um, yeah. e equally with um, novels that come in I'm charmed pretty much immediately. And sometimes it can be that, yes, I love the writing, but I don't know personally how I'm going to pitch this, how I'm going to edit it, quite how I would describe it to editors, place it in the market. So there are some things that come in that might be of great value, that might be really well done, but I'm just not the right fit. Um, I talked about adding value. I think that's really important. Um, and in finding an agent, you know, it's a luxury having a choice. I fully appreciate that. But if you do have a choice, think about someone who you really feel comfortable working with, who you don't necessarily feel intimidated by, and that you can see as being a sort of comrade as, as, as you continue through your writing journey. So, and sometimes I'm not the best person um, and editors feel like that sometimes when I send things. They'll say, look, I really like this, but I just couldn't figure out how I would go about publishing it. So it is a subjective business at heart, and that can feel tough and unfair. Yes, there's a lot of talk about comparisons, about looking at the market and costings from the publishers. You know, how many do we think we could sell? But some of it, it comes down to sort of educated guesses yeah. and, and passion and I really do I can say this um that I don't take anything on that I don't feel strongly and passionately about because you have to fight for it 
all the way along. We talked about all those hurdles. And if you haven't got that sort of feeling in the first place, when there may be rejections along the way, it's too hard not to. I, I don't want to just necessarily make a quick buck. I think probably when I first started out as an agent, I'd sort of take on this project or that project. I thought, oh, you know, I need to sell it. I need to start making money. And it's not that was less dis- discerning. That would be completely unfair. But I, it was far more eclectic and just opportunistic, if you like, because I needed to. I needed to build up my list. And now that I have evolved, I suppose, um, and it's been 10 years, um, 10 years um, this year since, or actually last year since I became an agent, I have, I sort of, I think I've found my my rhythm, if you like. I sort of, yeah. I, I know what I'm good at. I know the kind of, you know, I love reading, you know, I hate these sort of limiting terms sometimes, but, you know, more literary novels, but I'm not necessarily that good at working on them. So other people can do that better than I can. You know, there are certain genres where, you know, I don't feel particularly um knowledgeable about other people can do that better but there are certain things yes I feel I really can do something well yeah I mean there's there's absolutely no reason why uh an agent or an editor can't be amazing at working on non-fiction but then in their free time love to read fantasy you know yeah absolutely and I think a lot of us are like that you know we're all readers and and really we're kind of magpies um you know you saw a lot of of shiny (laughs) silver things oh I want to read that I want to read that I want to read that yeah. You said it yourself uh, when you, you, the growth is evident that you you said you finally kind of narrowed down your pitch and it feels right for you. And you've kind of figured out the very specific things that you like and are looking for as an agent. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, very much so. And it, and, and as, you, as you also said, it's a very tricky business to break into, even at the best of times. And at the moment, it feels especially hard. Um, what advice would you give to people who are querying their manuscripts at the moment um I think I mean it it is so tough it's so tough I mean you know to keep on going and that can be the hardest thing in the world sometimes I know but I think if you also find some support um so you know we talked about some people have writers groups or, or or others um that they can talk to so so you can just sort of buoy each other up sometimes that there are have a look for um agents who are starting out i think that's a really good tip um because they are looking at, to build their lists they need yeah. new writers you know as i said before i can't stress enough we can't exist without you the writers you know we are nothing <laughs> without you so we need you it's it's symbiotic in in hopefully a really good way um so i think also you know i would be there are lots of courses um which can provide access to agents i hate to think it's ever something you have to pay for or feel that you have to pay for um, mm-hmm. because that that makes me quite uncomfortable in some ways. It, in, I think it's great that those opportunities are there, but not everyone is in a position to be able to f- afford that. Although I think some schemes do provide bursaries um, for people who might not be able to manage that. So that is obviously one way of um, bypassing, I suppose, a step because often, you know, you can have one-to-ones with agents. Um, I think one one of the good things about the pandemic is the sort of hybridization 
and if you like of events and so forth so you can yeah. actually you don't have to travel around the country to a liter- literary festival and, and agents do sometimes go to festivals and events and give talks so listen to what they're looking for take advice um as i said it's it's the young ones um I, i'm not necessarily young in terms of age um i mean i didn't start age um agenting until i was um let's not a spring chicken but um <laughs> Um, although I am obviously perpetually young and I, and I even dressed up, I, I like to think I, I feel quite groovy. I dressed up for this, um, today, even though nobody can see me. <laughs> but we, but we can imagine, you now. Yes. I'm wearing my new, I got it in the sale, a very smart black jacket and a white t-shirt with kind of graffiti on it and my red lipstick. So I'm, I feel, you know, I'm, I'm young at heart. <laughs> so oh, definitely. Why have I told you this? Why am I telling you this? (laughs) But anyway, so um, I I think that's probably the best advice I can give you. Um, And also, you know, there are ways of, of, you know, there are small presses you can go um, direct to. Um, There are, you know, sometimes people even become really innovative. They set up their own thing, you know, with friends Mm -hmm. that they, you know, creative outlets, opportunities, you know, there's, there are, opportunities I'm not saying it's easy but you know just sending all the encouragement um that I can yeah and I mean there's a hundred ways to publish now and like there's yeah you can literally almost make it up you know from things like obviously self-publishing but then yeah. there's like Wattpad and people have had huge success of Wattpad exactly. which then got them agents and things like exactly. that exactly so yeah you've just you've just got to throw yourself at it really I think throw yourself at it and also you know, just keep doing it if you love it. And it's hard because, you know, in the end, however much we might do things for ourselves, of course we want readers. Of course we want an audience. You know, that's part of what art is, you know, and, unless you're just a committed diarist, but I don't think there are many of them out there. <laughs> like you can see all this when I'm dead. Um, but most of us, we we want that. We want that feedback. We want to feel that someone is reading and someone yeah, cares. I mean that's what that's what we're all doing it for in, in the end, isn't it? That's what that's what it's about. To so share our stories and to like share maybe the touch stories someone else and touch someone else and and, and mm-hmm. exactly that. And I think that's it's so fundamental. And I think about that a lot about you know this this need we have for stories and yeah. how fundamental it is and, and why that is. And obviously, I can't give all the answers, but from the sort of ancient times, it's been a part of us, and it's. We need to share that. We need to communicate with others, touch others, you know, educate others, challenge, amuse, entertain, frighten, all those things. That's a great, great way, great way to round, round off the uh, round off our, our interview here. Uh, and Thank that you. brings us to the final question, which is, Diana, if you were stranded on a desert island with a single book, which book would it be? Jamie, Jamie, what have you done to me with this question? You you dropped that in before Christmas and I have been mulling on it ever since. So this was my thought process is like, do we get the Bible and, and Shakespeare? Like, or are you just, you, no, no, no. Like, like, oh, there's, I just, no, okay, I've got it. Um, so first I was thinking, you know, would it be one of the kind of big Russians or something that I've been meaning to read forever? And I thought, nah. Um, then something funny like Cold Comfort Farm, which is one of those books which always makes me laugh and would feel mm-hmm. better because I'd feel yeah. lonely sometimes. But I'm afraid I ditched that as well. And then I got to Jane Eyre and I settled on it. Oh, and the reason yeah. I did was that 
it's a book that I've read a number of times over the years, first as a teenager, then perhaps in my 20s, and then I read it just a few years ago. And every time, every sort of stage in my life, I had a slightly different perspective. And there's so much richness in the writing and so much sort of imaginative detail that I think I would always find something new and there would be something comforting in sort of almost revisiting the part the past me and where I was, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, yeah. And and also just, it would also fuel the imagination. Is uh, One of my favourite books is um, The Wide Sargasso Sea by Jean Rhys, which was obviously inspired by Blanche, the so-called madwoman in the attic. And I recently <laughs> saw um, an exhibition of Paula Rago etchings and um, illustrations, and some of them were for Jane Eyre. Um, there's this beautiful, beautiful one of Jane and she had her back to us looking out of a window. And mm-hmm. so I thought there was so much rich possibility there that, that that'll do me. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a great answer. We all love, uh, we all love a bit of Charlotte Bronte. We all do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for, for coming on the, the podcast and, and chatting with me and sharing your experience with me and, and everyone listening. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it. And I'm really grateful to you for having me on here and for all of you who put up (laughs) with me. (laughs) It's it's been my my absolute pleasure. And for everyone listening, if you want to keep up with with what Dan is doing, uh, you can follow her on Twitter at Diana underscore Beaumont. Uh, you can follow the agency Marjak on Twitter at Marjak Scripts. Marjak is spelled M-A-R-J-A-C-Q in case well you're just listening to this and not reading <laughs> it. Uh, <laughs> and um, if you're planning to submit to Diana or, or, or anyone um, at the agency, make sure to head over to the website, check that they are open to submissions. Diana is currently not as of January, February 2022. Uh, and make sure you double check the guidelines before you fire off those, uh, those queries because you might fall at the first hurdle um and make sure you don't miss an episode of this podcast uh follow us on twitter at right and wrong uk and on instagram at right and wrong podcast huge thanks for dana for joining me today and everyone listening we'll see you on the next one waiting on a tax return hopefully it ends up in your hands fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30 percent in 2023 if you're in a bind this tax season lifelock can help our u.s-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.